Understood is a resource I have recommended for many years to parents looking for support with learning and thinking differences such as ADHD, dyslexia, and more. And I'm subsequently excited to tell you about their podcast, Understood Explains. This season, the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Urtube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. They cover topics such as how to tell if your child needs an IEP, common myths about special education, and the difference between IEPs and 504 plans. I love how Understood Explains breaks down the overwhelm by unpacking an important topic each season and then drilling down further into key basics in each episode. Most episodes are between 10 to 15 minutes, and episodes are available in both English and Spanish. So fantastic, right? To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Edit Your Life podcast. I'm Christine Coe. And I'm Asha Dornfest, and we're here to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. We share practical ways to declutter your home schedule and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. And we believe that baby steps are the key to getting there. Hello, Edit Your Life friends. Christine here today, and I am just so thrilled. I have a very special guest, the wonderful Jessica Leahy. Hi, Jess. Hello. Hello. So I was thinking about you this morning while I was walking my dog, actually midday, (laughs) and just (laughs) thinking that you are, I think the reason I was so delighted to talk to you today and why I always love interacting with you um, online and in person when that happens is you are truly one of the most generous and hardworking and lovely people I know. Like you're generous and you're hardworking for yourself and also for others. And so I just wanted to say live or semi-live, say that to you because it just, you impress me all the time. And so I'm thrilled that you took, you're taking the time now to talk. Well, it honestly comes from, I mean, the the learning curve for some of this stuff, whether that's writing for an editor, you know, whether that's speaking, the learning curve is so steep. And I had people who helped me along the way. Mm-hmm. And there are certain writers, for example, like A.J. Jacobs, had no reason to be kind and nice and generous with me. He didn't even know me. And yet he was. And like along the way, there have been these women, especially like the mom 2.0 women mm-hmm. have just been. Without, they're they're just like, what can I do to help you? And that is so, it just feeds my soul. It just makes me feel like there are people on my side and I want to be that for, you know, the the hashtag um, am writing podcast. That's always been our intention is to be that for up and coming writers who are trying to figure out the landscape. There's no reason we should have to redo this learning curve individually every single time. And so I just... I like flattening that out for other people as much as I can. I guess it's partially the teacher in me, but also just I've had so many people who have done the same for me. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, people, some people, listeners on the line might be familiar with you. Uh, You were on our podcast way back. I actually can't Mm -hmm. remember exactly what episode it was, but it was a fantastic episode called Untangling Over Parenting, which I will link Mm -hmm. in the show notes. You are the best-selling author of The Gift of Failure, which is a book I recommend to everybody. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, also shown being held by uh, Kristen Bell, just, you know, among things. And then yeah, that the was re- fun. Yes, that was fun. And then the reason we're talking today 
is that you have a new book out. It'll be maybe a month old by the time this airs. It's called The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. And hello, you were in People magazine about it. So some people might know you. Yes, I don't know. I was. It was. It's really weird. And also the thing that's funny about People magazine is they um, ask you for a lot of your own pictures from your past. And they specifically asked for one from middle school. <laughs> so awesome. it's really weird to have to go through your old photographs looking uh-huh. for a picture from middle school. It's also it's also quite humiliating. They're, you know, I've got braces in that picture. It's a great look. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Well, so some people are familiar with you. There may be people uh, for whom you are new. So I would love it if you could just start us out with a really brief bio and like how you got to where you are being a, you know, People Magazine model and best-selling author and podcaster. Oh, it's it's so twisty. In fact, I was just this morning was recommending that people pick up the new, um, it'll be out tomorrow, but obviously by the time this comes out, it'll be out, the paperback of Deb- David Epstein's book, Range. Because honestly, my career path has, uh, my adult life has taken just this twisty all over the place kind of thing. And which is great. I mean, I have, so I graduated with a degree in comparative literature. I did some weird stuff that had nothing to do with what I had gone to school for. I worked in um, like IT at a mutual fund company, Um, did a whole bunch of other weird stuff, worked for a child protection team. And I found this mentor that uh, got me really interested in doing juvenile law. Um, she was just an amazing woman, Marsha Mori, who worked in Durham County District Court. And I was positive that's what I wanted to do. So I went to law school, studied juvenile and education law predominantly, and then was asked to teach in the middle of that, became a teacher and went and also figured out very quickly that I wasn't going to practice law. I was going to do teaching. So mm-hmm. did that for 20 years, um, got sober during that period in like 2000 and 13 and uh, started teaching in an inpatient drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents and was a teacher there. So that's the gift of failure stuff came out of when I was teaching middle school. um, And that was just, I love middle school. So a lot of that middle school stuff is in gift of failure. And then after gift of failure did really well, there's that, you know, that sophomore thing like, okay, so, well, and of course, as soon as you finish one book, everyone's like, what are you doing next? Mm -hmm. And I had no idea. I, I had no idea. But getting sober, figuring out how to handle, um, you know, the, that genetic legacy and preventing substance abuse in kids with my own children and then mm. trying to figure out looking at my students at the rehab and trying to figure out how the heck did you people end up here and how can we keep that from happening? All of that sort of in this one moment, actually, after after I'd given my agent like four or five things that she was like, mm, not really. This isn't <laughs> no, this isn't great. Um, I That's humbling to hum- hear, by the way, yeah. fellow She's writers, great. In the, you know, listening. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> She's fantastic. She also does not sugarcoat things for me. She's either... She's like, no, this is not going to work. Um, so I was driving down to a speaking engagement for Gift of Failure and uh, pulled off the side of the road because addiction inoculation title and all landed in my lap. And there it mm. was. And I texted my two best friends, my co-hosts at the Hashtag Am Writing Podcast, and said, I got it. I know what it is. And um, yeah. And so that to me, you know, I love Gift of Failure. I'll always love Gift of Failure. But this this was the this is the book I was meant to write. This is the book that all makes all of the yucky stuff worth it. Oh, yes. I mean, it, there's so much personal there. There's so much in there. Yes. And so actually, I want to dive right into that. I was so moved right at the beginning of your book. You write about how addiction 
permeated your family tree. I believe those were the words or mm-hmm. similar words yes. that you used. Yeah. And that while the substance of choice may have varied, the one constant was secrecy. And I thought of mm. this, I just couldn't stop turning over this. It's certainly, secrecy is certainly something that's highly prevalent in my family. And I think in Korean culture, there's a lot of secrecy too. But I was curious, you know, I want to hear from you why secrecy can be so dangerous. I feel like it's very con- connected also to this current day conversation we have that people on the internet have about speaking your truth and being authentic, Mm -hmm. yet that's also so incredibly scary for people. What are your thoughts on that? I think there are various levels of secrecy. There's the whole, like, we need to keep up. There's the current day, like, Instagram perfection, sort of, you know, don't tell anyone what's right outside of the frame. Um, It's the very, you know, there's the, the curated life kind of secrecy of it doesn't really look like this. It looks like this mess over here. Um, But then there's also the really sort of toxic secrecy that has, you know, gone on for many generations in my family, which is just that some things are just not nice to talk about. So we're just going to pretend like they never happened or they Mm -hmm. don't exist. And we will um, get upset with anyone who ever dares to bring them up. And that's where substance abuse really was. Um, for me. And as a kid, and I have a sister as well, um, my sister and I sort of took turns being the one having to bring up the substance abuse, um, you know, knowing that it was going to be met with um, a certain amount of anger and dismissal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really, really hard, really, really hard. So I that was the one thing I knew coming out of this is that I couldn't I, di- I didn't have time. I didn't have the luxury of not talking about it with my kids. And then you know, I started as part of my journalism. I had also been reading about the effect that secrecy can have on people. And for example, my husband's an HIV doc. And one of the things that he had told me about was there's a study that showed that if people are out about their HIV status and um, dealing with it in this sort of public way, that their outcomes are just much better. Whereas mm. the people who are secret, you know, they it just it keeps us sick. And there's a saying in recovery that, you know, we're only as sick as our secrets. And in terms of getting things out there and dealing with the shame, um, just banishing the shame, the best way to do that is by not having a lot of secrets about stuff. And I'm not saying I don't have privacy. You know, I'm very private about, you know, certain things. I have a I have a public facing side and a private side. But on the public facing side, I just I have found over the years that the more I talk about my own recovery, the more people reach out to me in order to talk about theirs and sometimes Mm -hmm. for the first time. Mm -hmm. So I'm in this place of incredible privilege of getting to help other people open up, especially when it comes to. There's a a special section of this that sort of um, I get a lot, which is uh, moms who are, you know, just trying to raise kids and also trying to maintain some level of substance use (laughs) at the same time and are scared to death and are so filled with shame about it that that shame is keeping them from being able to do anything about it. Yeah. And that's, you know, and because my main interest really is in children's welfare, um, we can do a lot of things to ourselves, but then when we start involving children in the picture, I start to really try to figure out ways to make it so that the kids don't suffer from whatever it is we're doing to ourselves. Mm. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. All right. Well, I have, I have so many questions for you. Uh, Just, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll Mm -hmm. be right back. Did you know that hyaluronic acid naturally occurs in our skin, but decreases gradually as we age, leading to thinner, drier skin? If you're looking for support hydrating your skin from the inside out, 
check out one of the tools in my hydration arsenal, Rituals Hyacera, which I take every morning. Rituals products are tested and validated by a third party for allergens, microbes, and heavy metals, and Hyacera is clinically proven to reduce fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. They also engage in industry-leading sustainability standards and are a female-founded B Corp, which means they hold themselves accountable to not just their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. Want to join me in hydrating from the inside out? Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com edit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com edit for 25% off. Are you, like pretty much every parent of younger kids I know, looking for a smart entertainment option for your kids? Designed for kids ages 6 and up, Mysteries About True Histories, also known as Math, How Smart Is That?, is a weekly podcast full of time travel, puzzles, hidden equations, history, and humor. And while kids will enjoy the stories anchored around characters like troublesome trolls, pirate queens, and mysterious aunts, adults can benefit too— I admittedly delighted in learning a thing or two about Pythagoras and triangles in one episode. Every episode follows two best friends, Max and Molly, who work together to solve riddles and math equations during their time-traveling adventures. The series explores themes like the stories behind math, critical thinking, code-breaking, pattern-solving, and more, all weaving humor in with education to make learning fun. Episodes drop every Thursday and are about 15 minutes long, a great length for transition times during the day or a bedtime treat. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Okay, friends, we are back with the wonderful Jessica Leahy. My mind is turning, but I'm going to try to stay to the questions I have planned. And the first one, I want to talk about prevention. Uh, One Mm -hmm. of the first things you write about are your learnings over the years about how crucial it is to help kids manage their emotions and moods so they don't have Mm -hmm. to resort to self-medication. So obviously this is a huge question, but I was wondering if you have a key recommendation or two for parents who are a little bit overwhelmed about how to even like get started with emotion and mood management. One thing I was thinking of actually is our friend, our mutual friend, Katie Hurley. She has Mm -hmm. a workbook called the depression workbook for teens I'll link that up in the show notes, but I'm wondering if there's anything else sort of concrete and tactical you might recommend. Yeah. So just to make it clear, the research that I did for this book really was about, you know, when when the experts say substance abuse is preventable, what does that mean? So there's all kinds of risk factors and preventative factors and all that stuff. But I was listening to Chris Heron talk one day and Chris Heron he has a there's a wonderful documentary about him called First Day and the first day is um what he means by that is that we tend to talk a lot about the last day of our use like when we really hit you know quote unquote rock bottom or you know it was just ugly and we were in the gutter and barfing and you know that last day stuff that people those war stories that people tend to tell but what we really need to do is talk more about the first day And my entire adult life has been about helping kids feel like, as Chris Heron says, there's a reason that on many kids' first day, they pick up a drink because they don't feel like they're enough. They don't feel like they have the... 
they don't deserve to take up space in the world. They don't deserve to have a voice. They don't, they're not good enough for other people or good enough for themselves. And in recovery all the time, I hear people say, oh, you know, I just, I felt like I didn't have the instruction manual. I, I just never feel like I fit. And then suddenly I had my first taste of alcohol and I was like, oh, there's the answer to the question for me. There's the thing I've been missing. So my entire adult life, my job has been in some form or another to help kids feel like they are enough the way they are, that we're raising the kids we have and not the kids we wish we had, that our um, efforts are towards making kids feel like they deserve to take up space in the world. And that very sort of that core piece has a lot to do, you know, ties back into, you know, a lot of schools, social, emotional learning, um, making sure our kids love them, even if they're screwing up, making sure that we are not loving some imaginary version of our kid that's like the straight A student who's going to go to Harvard when our kid, you know, wants to be an art teacher and wants to paint and isn't necessarily interested in getting an A in chemistry class or whatever that thing is. Um, so when it really, when you really boil this whole thing down at its very essence, it's very much what our friend Katie does. It's very much what, you know, our friend Julie Lithcott Hames does, which is help kids find their voice and mm -hmm. help them help there be space in the world for everyone, for these kids who that, so they don't, don't feel like they need to self-medicate or, or numb out or eliminate the emotions that are hard for them. And so much, you know, there's a reason that when you look at risk for substance use disorder, you know, genetics are 50 to 60% of the risk picture. And a lot of the rest of it is trauma, adverse childhood experiences, you know, mm -hmm. big T and little T trauma. And, Kids that have gone through a lot of trauma, kids that have gone through have a lot of the kids that I taught in the rehab were in like group homes or foster care and didn't have a lot of ability to change their the circumstances of their existence. You know, their parent was going to keep, hit, keep hitting them no matter what they did. They were just going to get shuttled from house to house no matter what they did. So they have very low feelings of what's called self-efficacy. Mm -hmm. And so to deal with those low feelings of self-efficacy and to deal with the emotions that are so big and so overwhelming and that no one's helping them name, um, what is preferable to them is to just get rid of the emotions, to just mm -hmm. numb out and get rid of the emotions. And alcohol does that great. And, you know, pot does that great. And opiates do that really great in the short term. And so anything we can do as parents, as teachers, as as any kind of ally for a kid, and and by the way, the research shows that even for kids who have gone through the worst kind of trauma in their childhood, if they have one adult that supports and helps them, gives them hope, loves them unconditionally, they are so much more likely to be okay over their lifetime. Just one person. Mm -hmm. So if we're in the position to be that one person, if we're in the position to help a kid find that one person, if we're in a position to give kids the feeling that we believe in them no matter what, we're not going to give up on them, um, even if they screw up in the biggest possible way, then we're. that's a huge chunk of, that's a big part of it right there. Um, yes. So the practical stuff comes down to a lot of gift of failure stuff, which is, you know, helping kids feel like they're competent and not just confident, helping kids feel like they have hope, um, which and hope, you know, my favorite definition for hope is that you can envision a better future for yourself and you know that you have the skills and the ability to make your life better. Mm -hmm. And that is that second bit there is really the self-efficacy piece. So helping kids feel competent and empowered 
and like they have a voice and like they can be heard. That's the biggest piece of it that we um, the biggest hurdle that that we need to overcome. Mm -hmm. And Jess, I'm so glad you brought up adverse childhood experiences. We were talking about that just briefly before we even hopped on the recording, uh, because I I was thrilled when I read your integration of that into the book, because I think you know that I have suffered a lot of them. I didn't even know mm-hmm. there was a name for that until yeah. a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. And actually, I'll link up an episode I did with the lovely ladies, Amy and Meg, over at What Fresh Hell. We talked all about okay. ACEs. Um, and mm-hmm. I'll share my original blog post where I wrote about my sort of discoveries and realizations that it was those people, mm-hmm. uh, largely educators, <laughs> many music yeah. educators, who were the people that became my, uh, unknown to me, like they right. were my my kind of touch points and the people who pulled me through all of that. So I love that you're sort of issuing a cry to, or a rally cry to people to step in and you can be that trusted adult for people. If you want to understand adverse childhood experiences um, well, and you don't want to dig into like the CDC research on it, you can read Nadine Burke Harris's The Deepest Well. And Mm. she was the first person to really take the, um, you know, Kaiser Permanente CDC study on adverse childhood experiences and really write about it for a more popular audience. And she is now uh, the Surgeon General of California, but she has practiced pediatrics in California for a long time. And her book is about these adverse childhood experiences that we have and they're in certain categories and she expands on the list a bit, but they have so much impact on not just our mental health, but our physical health, you know, Mm -hmm. whether or not you're going to have a stroke, whether or not you're going to have a heart attack. Um, A lot of what happens to us um, as a child, you know, that really can have a lifelong impact on all kinds of risk factors. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I have a question for you. Obviously we are in, coming to the end of, I don't know, the hardest mm-hmm. of times. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah. I feel like pretty much every corner of parenting advice talks about the importance of modeling, which right. I believe in, you believe in, we we know this is a good thing. And I'd, I'd be curious about what your thoughts are, especially right now for simple tactics for parents when they are feeling quite depleted, like the well, <laughs> the well yeah. is quite empty. What would you say there? So the, I wrote a piece for, I want to say, but yeah, Boston Globe magazine about reframing for kids. I mean, the, the power of reframing cannot be understated. In fact, in, in the addiction inoculation, I was freaking out because I uh, moved, we moved our family when my son was moving from middle school to high school and transitions and particularly that transition is a really risky time for kids in terms of trying substances. It's Mm. if kids are going to start, that's sort of when they do it. And I was absolutely flipping out. I moved my kid away from the friends he loved, away from parents of those friends that I trusted to help raise my child. I mean, it was a nightmare scenario. Uh And he also was not on board with the move. He was not happy about it. So I was talking to Dr. Dan Siegel about various, you know, risk and, and, and mindfulness and all kinds of stuff and how that could be helpful. And he said, well, he said, let me help you out first. He said, how about you reframe this move, not as this massive risk factor that you've now piled on your kid, which, you know, there's some risk there. But how about we reframe this as a way of um, helping your kid get some novelty, some hits of dopamine because they're off trying things that are new for them, some uh, the ability to think of this as a time when there's some positive risk involved that you can push them towards. This could be a really great preventative measure as well. And of course, I was so deep into the 
how scary and how bad I felt that Uh I had done this thing that it never occurred to me. And I'm writing about this stuff. I am actively writing (laughs) about this stuff. And it didn't occur to me to reframe my thinking about what this move could be for him and, you know, helping him maybe join some clubs, find some new friends, you know, explore new places, get on the bike and go find a new, you know, all of these are things that feed that same dopamine, those same dopamine receptors that kids tend to um, use drugs and alcohol in order to, um, to activate. So, cause kids have lower levels of uh, adolescents have lower levels of dopamine at baseline than children or young adults or adults do. So they're constantly seeking out novelty Uh and he's like, so use it. And that kind of reframing is so valuable because when we teach kids how to do that, like, okay, this didn't work out for you, but let's turn that around. It's going to give you the opportunity to try something else, or it's going to, you know, the fact that this relationship fell apart is going to give you the opportunity to date other people and find out what's interesting about, you know, there's all kinds of opportunities for us to show kids that we can reframe things in a more positive light. And it's like the very first step to um, to resilience, really. It's yes, one of the absolutely. first steps to um, helping kids. And this is all in Michelle Borba's new book, Thrivers. Um, she goes into this quite a bit, actually. And and so does um, uh, Lisa DeMora talks a lot about reframing in her book, Under Pressure, in talking about anxiety in girls. There's mm-hmm. a lot in there about helping, helping girls reframe their anxiety in, in a way that's actually useful. So, yeah, that's the first place to start. I think that's fabulous. And I want to also say that this, you know, reframing, which I also find incredibly powerful, it doesn't mean you just say, ah, don't worry about the other thing, or you kind of dismiss the right, sadness exactly. or, the, or the, those other feelings. It's just saying, yeah, I know that sucks. And here are some other things we could get out of this. So I think that's really important. It's, it is necessary and normal to hold both of those things. Right. And it's also, it, there's a little bit of risk here in that the one thing, I was talking to someone about this just the other day, that for adolescents, there is a damage that has been done by this pandemic that I can't relate to, which is, so I have a 17-year-old kid, and he has been alone for a year and a half mm-hmm. in the middle of his adolescence when he should be going on dates and figuring out who he is as a, from, as a, uh, you know, the kind of person who has relationships and that's just been stolen from him. And for me to say, oh, I completely understand. And here, let me tell you what it's been like for me. The woe is me as well. That would, that is so so off-putting for adolescents. Mm -hmm. So what you have to do is sort of find a way to empathize, to be, to listen to, you know, to reflect back some of the stuff that they're talking about without without um, undermining their, the sense of, no, 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 this for me is really big. And I don't want you to tell me, oh, when I was young and I had to walk up uphill both ways to school in the snow, I had it really hard. We can't do that either. So mm-hmm. I'm really glad you brought up the difference between reframing and belittling (laughs) you know saying saying that what they're experiencing is not what they're experiencing or here here is how you should be perceiving your world and you are incorrect in the way you're perceiving it that borders on gaslighting so right that's definitely not right either right well you mentioned mindfulness a few minutes ago which i Mm -hmm. love because i tremendously appreciate that you focus on the importance of mindfulness in your book And I recognize that a lot of people kind of eye roll and assume mindfulness means meditation and that it feels Mm -hmm. hard and that it's hard Mm -hmm. to even do it. And how do you slow down? 
So I thought it would be fun to ask you if you have an example of a really doable way that parents and caregivers can promote mindfulness with kids. So with little, little kids, I love, I've seen on, uh, I I think it was like on TikTok, there are all these little videos of kids who have learned about the breathing thing and sort of teach it to their little siblings, this moment of like, you know, take a breath and just sort of, you know, uh, it's just kills me because that, you know, as we all know, we don't, we haven't really truly learned something until we sort of teach someone else about it. So these, the fact that some kids are understanding just taking a moment to breathe is so important that they then teach it to their little brothers or sisters just slays me. Uh-huh. Um, and in the book, I'm really blatant. I'm really blunt about the fact that I did try Dan Siegel, Siegel's um, Wheel of Awareness meditation, uh, guided meditation with my son. And my son, my 17-year-old, can be fairly game for some things like meditation or yoga or whatever if they happen on his terms. But what's really interesting to me is even that exercise, which he rejected, and I, I talk about that in the book, that we didn't stick for it with, with it for a full month. Um, it just kind of got old for him, and it wasn't it wasn't meditation the way he wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. And so I, instead of taking that as a complete failure— You know, we talked about other ways that meditation, you know, I have found actually that's not my favorite way to meditate either. I have a different way. And it turns out his way is very different from my way. And so finding, and this is so much about raising adolescence anyway, but helping guide kids so that they can find their own strategy is sort of the name of the game. As much as possible, helping them view it as their own idea is also the name of the game and how you get by it. So I tried that just as an attempt. And it gave us a taste. And now nothing to, to do with me. Um, and it probably has nothing to do with the fact that we did those wheel of awareness things. My son now has this little little shrine in his room with a, um, a couple little statues. He sort of created his own little meditation space in his room. He stole my buckwheat pillow that I sit on. Um, it now belongs to him, I guess. <laughs> and um, and he's created that little space for himself with a, okay. and has a little blanket laid out on the floor. And that's private for him. He doesn't Mm -hmm. want to meditate with me. Mm -hmm. He wants to meditate. But the fact that I explored that with him and taught him one way to do it helped him understand that there were also other ways to do it that might be more appealing. And we didn't just stop there. We tried a couple of different ones as well. There's a, a yogi uh, a yoga teacher that we love named MC Yogi. He's also a musician and he has on, um, glow.com he has some guided meditations on there that we absolutely love and occasionally he'll do those with me but more it's about just saying look this exists this is a thing that you can do and here's one way to do it and there are lots of other ways and you know let's see what works for us that's really cool i love that i have like a vision of you know his little sacred space and i love it so much it's it's really quite sweet actually i do have friends i have one friend who um and i interviewed her for the book ended up not using the material but she's been doing transcendental meditation with her kids since they were very very little and she says it's just been such a boon for her kids ability to recenter themselves mm. to sort of get the mm-hmm. integrate their brain and stuff like that so you know meditation can come in a lot of forms a bike ride can be meditation Uh and you know or a walk in the woods and so for for one of my kids that's his form i love it all right well we are going to return with a couple more questions for jess Leahy after a quick break lynn this time of year parenting can be such a fluster clucks you've come to the right place I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast 
for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, friends, we are back with the wonderful Jessica Leahy. So much wisdom being dropped. I'm inspired. Hi, Jess. (laughs) Okay, well, you have a whole chapter. It's called We Have to Talk About It, starting the conversation, Mm -hmm. which, of course, makes me rub my hands together and sort of say yay, because Mm -hmm. obviously open and honest communication is so crucial. And I know it is something so many families wrestle with, whether it's talking about bodies or bigger emotional things. It's just... Mm -hmm. It permeates all levels. So or you have- even just the regular stuff. I have one of my kids is so private. It's ridiculous. Like he will talk to me <laughs> about nothing. I have uh-huh. to work really hard to get even just like the smallest conversation out of him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have a ton of tips in this chapter. So I, I was telling you before we even hopped on officially, just I love how much actionable material there is in this book. And that's why I really wanted to have you on the show too for this conversation, because that's what our listeners love. So about communication, I'm curious, you know, there's so many tips in the chapter, but in your experience, um, teaching, speaking, talking to parents, whatever, what have you seen as one of the biggest challenges communication-wise for parents? And what would your solution be? Oh, by far. And this is, by the way, this is not just like, oh, in my experience of my life, this is like when I ask, when I go speak at schools, I ask, I give all of the kids my email address and I ask them to email we email me with things they want me to tell their parents when I speak to their parents that evening. So this is coming from kids. And by far, when it comes to communication, it well, it's really two things. It's, um, I do want to talk to my parents. I just don't want to talk about the stuff they want to talk about. Uh, but the biggest message I get is I want them, 
I want to be able to talk to my parents without them feeling like they need to fix my problems. Mm -hmm. Um, There's sort of this, there's the other thing is, you know, I want my parent to listen to me without judging because, and as a person who tends to think out loud, I completely get that. My husband has had to learn how to hear me say things like, you know, what if we move to South America? And I don't mean we're going to move to South America. I'm just doing like a thought experiment. Yes. And, you know, he was raised, my husband was raised by two adults who, who, two parents who have all their thoughts completely thought out before they open their mouths. So he wasn't used to hearing people just kind of go, oh, and we could move to Norway. And what would that look like? That was really upsetting to him at first because he really thought I meant I'm going to move to Norway mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, but a lot of kids say, you know, that that, talking about things and hearing themselves and sometimes even hearing themselves say things that they're not even sure are kosher. They just need it to come out of their mouth to be able Mm -hmm. to think it through. Mm -hmm. Having an understanding that our job is not to judge everything they say or fix every problem they have is really important. And when I hear my kids say something like, oh, I think I might do this thing that P.S. might completely derail his academic career and blah, 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 blah. Or, um, you know, oh, I'm having this trouble and it's really upsetting to me. I immediately go into, ooh, let me help you fix it. I can call one of my friends who are therapists and they can help you fix it. And that's not what they want. Often mm-hmm. what they want is for us to listen, be a sounding board. And as a teacher, I understand that one of the biggest jobs that we have is to help get kids to the answer without giving them the answer, help lead them there um, by, even if we don't know where we're going sometimes, by just having discussions about things, that it's not my job to reteach, to give all the answers. It's my job to be a sounding board. Mm, Yes, yes, indeed. And that's, I think, the hardest thing for me because I'm desperate to fix. I mean, I write self-help books. I write books about how to, you know, I'm (laughs) desperate, desperate to fix things for people. and, And coming to terms with that has been really hard for me but also really instructional when it comes to my parenting. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a problem solver too. So yeah. I have to have to pause basically before anything comes out of my mouth to evaluate whether it's really for me or whether it's for the other person. <laughs> and then I do a lot of apologizing when I don't have the answer. And you, you can't see me right now because we're not doing video, but behind me on this wall are a bunch of my kids' Harry Potter wands from when they were little. I glued them to the wall because I found myself saying a lot if I had a magic wand, I would do this. And I like having them behind me because it sort of makes me feel like I can say, but that's, but that's not reality. Oh, there's there's no way for zoom me to. Wall? That's your that's zoom wall? That's my zoom See, wall. See, I need yeah. progressive lenses. So I have not, yeah. on the screen, when we have been on Zoom, I have not been able to determine what is behind so there's funny. there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff behind me, but a few, but um, there are four it. Harry Potter magic wands behind me. I love me. it. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so good. All right. Well, so far, we've really been talking about the stuff that's happening in the home, which is Mm -hmm. fitting because of where we are. But the last major thing I wanted to approach with you is this issue of, you know, friends. Uh, You devote a whole chapter to friendship and peer pressure, tons of strategies again in there. But I was curious because I've had plenty of conversations with parents about this. You know, what do you do, if anything, if you are not wild about your kids' friends in terms <laughs> of feeling like they have abuse, abusive or potentially abusive right. behaviors that could be rubbing off your kid or are rubbing right. off on your kid. So there is a component of risk that ha- does have to do with 
personality. And actually, it's related that, you know, we can't, there's no like one gene for addiction that we can just knock out. But we do know that some of the genes that may lend themselves to the potential for substance use disorder also are kind of attached to various uh, aspects of personalities, traits. And anyway, it's a very complicated picture. But I can tell you that with my oldest kid, when he was really young, I I adore my oldest kid's childhood friends. But there was one of them and and he, if he was listening to this, he would absolutely know who he is. That made me so nervous. He just was had this gravitational pull toward risk, toward mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. the kid was constantly in a cast. He was constantly hurt. He was constantly <gasps> throwing himself off of high structures. Um, he built a luge track in his woods that swerved around trees. And everything about this kid made me say, when they are old enough to drive, this kid will make me very, very nervous. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he mellowed out with age and thank goodness. And, but so there are things that, you know, as a parent, we're right to sort of just keep an eye on in terms of like, if you have a, if your friend kid has a friend that really is drawn to risky stuff, especially since we know there's research that I talk about in the book that um, when kids are with their peers, they're actually, their tolerance for risk goes way up. They're more likely Mm -hmm. to take risks when they are in a peer group. So, so there's that, but I also would beg parents not to take the adage that, you know, if your kids' friends do drugs and alcohol, that your kids are going to do drugs and alcohol. Because the story I tell, the framing story in the peer, um, in the peer chapter is really my attempt to make sense of all the gray areas in the research on peer groups, on peer cohort. Because uh, my son became friends with this kid, Brian. That's his real name. He's an adult now. Brian and Georgia, by the way, are two of the biggest stories in the book besides my own. Those are their real names. Both Brian and Georgia felt it was incredibly important to use their the personal hell <laughs> stories mm. to um, help other people. So I gave them lots of outs and they did not want them. They wanted their real names to be used. So Brian had been kicked out of Brian was eventually kicked out of three high school, three separate times for behavior and substance use. And it was really important to my son to remain loyal to Brian. And my instinct from the beginning was well, that relationship's over. You can't be around him, which does not work. I Mm -hmm. mean, you know, the minute you try to restrict who your kid can be friends with, that's like the best possible way to push them toward that kid. (laughs) Yes. So instead, and knowing that, and plus they were in classes together, they Mm -hmm. ran together, you know, it just would have been ridiculous. So instead, I just said, okay, well, we're going to talk about this a lot. Because if you're going to remain friends with with Brian, I'm going to need to understand what it is that's feeding you about this relationship. What is it that you're getting out of the relationship? What's happening that's positive? What's happening that's negative? Just uh, we're going to need to talk about it a lot. And he was cool with that. So we talked about Brian a lot. And we talked about, you know, when when Ben and his friends wanted to go visit Brian in, you know, in recovery or, you know, there was all sorts of moments where having conversations about Brian became a very convenient proxy for having conversations about where Ben's head is around Mm. substances. Mm -hmm. What's fascinating about that relationship is in the end, that relationship was probably highly instructional for Ben in terms of what he stood to lose Mm -hmm. because his friends and his school meant everything to him. And he saw Brian had was kicked out and had to leave twice actually. And and finally the last time, um, the last time he left, the very last thing he did that morning before he left was have a run, go on a run with my son and a bunch of their friends from cross country team. 
And that was the breakthrough moment for Brian. That's yeah. when he said, oh, th- this is what I'm losing for mm-hmm. real now. Mm-hmm. And thank goodness the school enforced their consequences. Like they really did kick him out. They didn't mm-hmm. like say, oh, well, how about one more try? Because that moment of being held to consequences, both for Brian and for my son, were highly important moments of clarity mm-hmm. around the real risk involved in screwing up your life by either because you're using or whatever. Um, so I, I would beg parents to not go the simple route, that, and I don't say simple because it's not simple, the easy route of cut that kid out of your life because A, that's not going to work. And B, there can be value in that relationship if you approach it from a place of, you know, talking about it a lot and 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 modeling your own healthy peer relationships for your kids. You know, mm-hmm. I have a friend now who I had to convince, by the way, that I was so, so good at hiding my substance abuse that I had to convince her that I really was an alcoholic. She didn't believe me. Um, but now this is the person who, if we're going to a, an event, will call ahead to make sure that there's non-alcoholic beverages available for me because she loves me. And mm-hmm. so when I talk to my kids about why, what good relationships are and what toxic relationships are, I say, look, my friends don't want to take me down with them. They want me to be better. And so they help me be the best version of myself. And so when my friends, when my kids have friends with people, are friends with people that make them anxious or angry or make them feel off balance, you know, I say things like, you know, when I pick you up at so-and-so's house, you just don't seem happy. Mm -hmm. What is it you're getting out of that relationship? And those kind of conversations are going to be super important. So I, you know, I think there's a lot of wisdom around um, keeping your kids safe that is a little too black and white. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And that worries me because the real education happens in the, in the, in the shades of gray. Yes, absolutely. And I love that your approach there was really, we're going to just need to keep talking about it. And yeah, you know, that's, that's so crucial. And you know, loops back to what you said earlier about not being judgmental and being open and not having all the answers. It's so important. I think I think that, you know, when it comes down to it, he was able to talk about that stuff because I had said very specifically that my I I was not going to respond from a place of, you know, fault or judgment or mm-hmm. yeah, that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. and I think you have to have a bit of a track record with that before kids will open up to you about yeah, the that trust has stuff. to be built. Yes, absolutely. Okay, Jess. Well, uh, as much as I'd love to stay online with you all day today, we have to close out this episode. And as you know, at the end of each episode, Asha and I share something that we call Your Next Edit. It's something really tangible and actionable that listeners can consider doing straight away. And I would love to know what Your Next Edit is in the context of our conversation today. Oh, I think a lot of what I need to focus on is is sort of keeping the noise of others at bay, the words of others, the opinions of others about what I'm supposed to be doing next or the opinions about of others about what I just did and whether or not it's worthy of attention. And, you know, I think as a journalist, I've been getting better at this. And, you know, the analogous statement is, you know, don't read the comments and don't read the reviews Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Um, But for most people, it's just it's it's that doom scrolling and it's that opinions. And even if it's well-intentioned opinions, like your mother or your friends telling you what they think you should do next, I I'm trying really hard to focus on the things that bring worth and value to my life and, and remain true to those things. And that's what I'm hoping this summer is going to be a summer of for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
So for listeners, you would say that like tuning out the noise is a big part of the thing that people should work on. Yeah. Yeah. For journalists, they look like comments, but for people who are not journalists, it looks like just everyone having an opinion about, you know, what's good and what's bad and starting to make some determinations about what, what gives you joy and what gives your life meaning um, and remaining true to that as opposed to listening to everybody else. Mm, Such good advice. Jess, I can't thank you enough for being part of this conversation and taking the time out of busy, busy, busy launch time to hop on the mic with me. I'm so grateful to you. Anytime. I love talking to you about this stuff. It makes me very happy. That is one thing that I would definitely not edit out of my life. Aw, thanks. All right, (laughs) friends. You will find the show notes for this episode, including links to resources we've mentioned at Edit Your Life Show. This week, we'd like to know, given that this past year has been the year of all the feelings, we want to know what is something that has helped you and your family get into a positive emotional state amidst struggle. Hop over to facebook.com slash edit your life show and look for the question of the week pinned to the top of the page. Or you can chat with us on Instagram at edit your life show. And as ever, we'd be delighted if you would take a moment to review our show on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play, and we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.